0: Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your done with the semester and A People's Theology host, Mesa Menega. In this episode, I talk with Kelly Nikandeja. Kelly is a co-director and chief storyteller for Communities of Hope, a community development enterprise in Burundi. She's also the author of the recent book, Defiant, What the Women of Exodus Teach Us About Freedom. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Stormo, Stormo is an alternative and indie pop band. You can get connected with both Kelly and Stormo and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of a people's theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. I have Kelly Nikandeha. Did I get it?
1: You got it perfect. Oh,
0: beautiful. Wonderful. Uh, so I have Kelly today, and Kelly does some really wonderful things in the world, including you just wrote a wonderful book called uh, Defiant What Women of the Exodus Teach Us About Freedom. Uh, I love the book. It was really great. It was Sort of uh, as somebody who you know grew up in the evangelical world, it was really great to like dive back in the Exodus because there was really you know like what kind of one interpretation or one understanding of the Exodus, one telling of the Exodus story, and so it was really great to like jump back in and with new eyes, totally get a totally different perspective of the Exodus story. So, anyway, uh, we'll talk all about that. But before I begin, Kelly, who is Kelly Nickendeha to Kelly Nickendeha?
1: Oh my, we're gonna get very ontological here. We
0: are going to always get <laughs> ontological here.
1: Well, uh Kelly Nukandeha, uh, as I see and understand myself, uh, is uh the daughter of a Latina.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: She is a liberation theologian. Mm-hmm. Just reclaimed that several years ago. And uh you know, she's connected to the world, especially um the Uh, You know, my husband is from Africa and grew up in less than a dollar a day, and I think he has connected me to the side of the world that has suffered colonization, and I I feel a connection to that part of the world now that Mm -hmm. I never did growing up. Mm. Um, And uh, Kelly's uh, ecclesiastically promiscuous.
0: (laughs) I saw that on your Twitter bio. I love
1: that. She loves many, many parts of the church where uh, where Kelly feels comfortable.
0: Love that. <laughs>
1: Although the Catholic Church is definitely her mother church.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, as somebody who also would consider myself ecclesiastically promiscuous, I, I can totally relate to that. So let's talk a little bit about the book. Uh, what was something you maybe learned about the Bible or about theology as you wrote the book?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think, and this comes out uh, in my the methodology that I ended up using for this book, which is the the power of imagination. Mm-hmm. In doing our theological work, uh, so I uh, th- the way I approach this text, um, I'm somebody who loves to dig deep into Scripture, and so there's plenty of exegetical work,
2: mm-hmm. plenty of
1: commentaries, mm-hmm. plenty of research uh, in um, other books that would you know the archaeology, the, the understanding the time periods and the language, etc. Plenty of exegetical work, um, and then long meditation on the text. You know, I carried a a wide line text of Exodus 1 to 15 in my bag for probably about three years, and it traveled with me the world. I go from Arizona to Burundi into Kenya. We were in China. We were in Palestine and everywhere I took it with me. And it was always interesting to meditate on this text, Um, of course, as I'm reading and studying, but also the different places that kind of then blow in and influence the reading and the understanding of the text but what the exegesis and the meditation led to which more in this book than anything else I've done was imagination mm. that you start i felt like i became familiar with these women that i i got a sense of their world i got a sense of a bit of who they were and and started to to imagine how did they react how did they connect with each other and and i i hope that some of that was was spirit inspired that, you know, when you're that intimate with the text that your imagination gets to participate and the spirit uses that not as canon. Of course, I know my imaginings of these women um, is not, doesn't have canonical force, but Mm -hmm. I hope that it was shaped by the spirit and helps. It certainly helped me understand different, different experiences of these women and that, that have been challenged me. And I hope, uh, to invite others into that space. So I think for me, the surprise was how the spirit can use our imagination. And, and Will Gaffney calls it the sanctified imagination. Mm,
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And I, and that was, it's not that it never happened before, but this project really allowed me to lean into that and, and offered a lot of wonderful surprises along the way. So
2: mm-hmm,
0: I love that. Uh, is this your first book by any chance?
1: No, this okay. is my
2: second. Okay,
0: so your second book. So you, so you've gone through the the book writing process before. What was Correct. something you learned about this uh, about yourself as you wrote the book? Um, mm-hmm. Maybe that was different than something you learned about yourself uh, the first time you wrote a book.
1: Oh, well, I I think the the writing process, um, boy, it. I think the first time I wrote a book, I learned that I had the grit to do it. Hmm. Um I think the second time I, I just i learned you know the capacity to be surprised uh, that even when you know i'm I'm uh, if you know Enneagram speak i'm a five I'm somebody mm-hmm. who is in my head who very cerebral loves to plan, loves structure uh loves a good detailed outline but but this time, there were even things that my outline could not have anticipated. Uh, that when you get deep into the thick of writing, um, even a, even some even a, even a five uh, can be surprised, you know, like oh, I didn't I didn't see that before. I I didn't think it would go that direction, and you know, and then you know, I had to choose: am I going to lean into it? And you know.
0: Excuse my uh, my sort of inability to, to speak Hebrew really well. I, I took Hebrew a number of years ago, and, and I've probably forgotten most of what I learned. But at the beginning of the book, you talk about the bravery of, is it Shipra and Pua? Is that how you mm-hmm, say it? Correct. It's one of those things. You ever read like those words where you're like, okay, I know like what the word looks like, but I don't <laughs> know exactly how to say it until you actually have to say it? Yeah, pericope
1: was mine. The first time I had to say pericope and I accidentally said pericope.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's an, easy, that's an easy one to mispronounce too, yeah. So anyway, you talk about the bravery of Shipra and Pua at the beginning of the book. Um, we often forget about these characters in the Exodus story. We often think about Pharaoh. We often obviously think about Moses. We forget about a lot of not only women characters, but specifically these two. What did, what did they do and why was it important for the liberation of the, the Hebrew people?
1: Sure. Uh, so Shifra and Pua are, we're told that they're midwives to the Hebrew clan. Now, if you understand that the Hebrew people were prolific and multiplying um, enough to be a threat to the, to the Pharaoh, to the empire, uh, you would have to believe that actually they weren't the only two midwives, but that they were probably the leaders of the midwifery guild. Mm. So they were the leader of of a group of an organized, skilled labor force, so to speak. Maybe you could think of them like union leaders in a way. (laughs) But uh, they were called before Pharaoh, according to the story. um, And he told them this at at the time, it was a covert plan um, that he told them if, you know, when children are born, if it's a baby boy that's coming down the birth canal. And of course, midwives would see that before even the parent, even the mother would. The baby boy cut that off at the at the birth stool, kill it. And if the baby girl, ah, you can let them live. Mm. and and one of the thoughts is that the at the time Egypt was um had some anxiety about international affairs and and so we're concerned about uh, the possibility of a military force, um and that maybe boys would be right likely drafted into that kind of service. And so the boys were the threat, uh, he thought. So he told these women, you know, kill the boys and do it quietly. Mothers don't need it. right? just do it. Um, and the women walked out of the palace knowing full well. We're not afraid of him, although I'm sure they were shaking in their boots at the time. <laughs> we weren't afraid of him. We fear God. And they continued to deliver every child that came through the birth canal. They did not discriminate based on gender. You know, Pharaoh looks with the eyes to discriminate boy or girl, we treat him different, but these women looked with the eyes of God. They wouldn't discriminate. Any life was going to be delivered and given a chance to flourish. But really when they walked out and they walked, I envisioned them having to then meet with all of the women, you know, all the other midwives wanting to know why did Pharaoh in with you? What happened in that meeting? What did he say? What did you say? You know, and they, They tell these women, we're gonna keep doing what we have always done, what our mothers taught us to do. We are gonna keep delivering babies, boys and girls. And in that moment, they had just organized their first act of civil disobedience. It's really the first act of civil disobedience we see in the text. But there it is by these two women who refused to obey Pharaoh. Um, And and later he's gonna call them in after he figures out it didn't work. And the story doesn't tell us how long it took him to to catch on that (laughs) baby boys were still being born across the river. Uh, But when he calls them back in, they look at him and first they kind of taunt him. They use his own prejudice against him. And when they say, oh gosh, these Hebrew women, well, they just keep, you know how they are. They just birth babies, so they're so prolific and they birth them so fast, just like insects, which is what he kind of had called them before. Um, They just use that against them. Oh, you know, we just can't get there fast enough. They're just like, you know, it's like, say, it would be the equivalent of saying they birthed just like rabbits. It happens so quick. We just can't get there in enough time. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but then, you know, they, they lie to him. In essence, they look Pharaoh in the eye until a bold face lie. And and God rewards their disobedience.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, I love that. In Miriam's story, we see ethnic crossing in order to further the work of liberation. Why is it that like transracial and trans ethnic solidarity is critical for liberation work?
1: Well, I, I mean, I can tell this a little bit from my own story, but of course, we have these three women that we see kind of come together at the edge of the Nile. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jochebed, who is the woman who birthed a baby boy, we'll find out later that's Moses. Um, her adolescent daughter, the young Miriam. And then this woman from Pharaoh's own house, one of his daughters, um, Bathia, tradition calls her Bathia. And these women end up at the edge of the Nile together. uh, One having to relinquish her child because all of the injustice of the empire was breathing down her neck. And in that moment, relinquishing him was the most loving thing she could do. Um, but the most risky thing, mm. um, and the young girl has the eyes to see, oh, there's something that we might be able to do here. If I could get these two women to pair up, there might be a way for for my little baby brother to survive. You know, leave it to the young to have eyes to see new opportunities, unorthodox partnerships, um, where some of us who are kind of saturated in the status quo don't really see it. But this young woman sees the possibility, and she inserts herself between these two women and says, Hey, we could do a, we could do a a nursemaid contract and you with all of your privilege, Bethia and your money can pay this woman who happens to be her mom and the baby's mom. You can pay her and let her nurse the baby and he'll live. You know, I mean, it's just, I love that she sees the possibility, Hmm. Um, but it, it, it was these women working together, right, that saved baby Moses in this instance. And and I think that in my own under, imagination, this would not have been the first time that Bethia, the royal daughter, maybe saw a baby boy wash up on the shore. You have to think if there were a lot of baby boys being born, and by this time, Pharaoh had gone public and said, every baby boy goes in, goes in the Nile, and. Every Egyptian is part of this plan. They are all complicit. And I tell you, the text says all. If you don't believe me, double check my work. But all of Egypt is made complicit by this time in his infanticide. And so she would have had to see, I imagine her walking at sunset down the Nile and a baby boy, she sees a baby boy face down in the sand, already dead, waterlogged. But what can she do? You know, she's one of Pharaoh's daughters. She's probably not even his favorite. It's not like she can get an audience with him all the time. Um, And she certainly can't change imperial policy. So is she a woman of privilege? Yes. Does she have relative ease on her side of the Nile? Yes. Um, But is she also a bit paralyzed? I believe yes. You know, and I part of my imagining is shaped by my own experience that when I saw that picture of a little baby boy face down in Turkey on a beach, a little refugee boy who couldn't make it all the way, we all saw that picture, his red t-shirt, his blue shorts, there he was dead, and I had that same feeling of I am an educated, light-skinned woman, means, Uh, raised in one of the richest countries in the world, and what can I do? Yes, I recognize I have benefited from this system, but I felt paralyzed to know, how do I get to activate? Um, and, And so I imagine that she would have had some similar dynamics of, yes, I'm privileged. I also have some limitations, and I'm also a bit paralyzed. And what it took was, first of all, this baby that was alive, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes we miss the fact that when the reeds shook and, the, and the, the basket came her way, the baby was crying. The first thing she would have noticed is that this one is alive, which means she had a choice. Now she had a choice because she could do something. And I believe it was the women across the Nile. It was those two Hebrew women, mother and daughter who by holy entrapment, (laughs) so to speak, pulled her into the resistance movement. They helped her break that paralysis and gave her a way in to a partnership that would not only help save the baby, but would really help free her from that complicity Mm. uh, that she was part of being raised in the courts of Pharaoh. And I think it's a constant challenge to me because I've been raised in the courts of Pharaoh, so to speak. and I, I need women, to I need women who are different from me. I need well, men and women from other um, places in the story to invite me in, so that I don't get stuck. Because sometimes I do need help, um, and I, I, I see that in the story. I see, you know.
0: You're kind of talking um, about this sisterhood that develops among these women. Um, Not just those three, but across a number of women in this this entire Exodus story. What happens in sisterhood that bequeaths (laughs) liberative work?
1: You know, I think, and this was one of the surprises, actually, when I worked on the book, was when I came to the Seven Sisters of Midian, Mm. which I'm sure everybody is so well-versed in them. (laughs) Actually, when I wrote my outline, I had scant bullet points under that, because I was like, what am I going to say? I mean, there's not a lot of real estate even in the text about these (laughs) seven women, other than we know that one of them will will learn her name because she'll marry Moses, uh, right, Zipporah. But the Seven Sisters... Um, Moses crosses the desert as an adult, ends up in Midian, and he comes across these seven sisters at the well. And I think I had always imagined them to be these genteel, wayfish figures with these fluffy little sheep on this little, you know, pastoral, green-hilled landscape. Except that, of course, it wasn't. You know, they did research. And having been to Palestine and a lot of those hills myself, was like, oh, they aren't all that way, you know. Um, and one day I recognized, wait, these weren't just the, you know, these weren't just seven sisters hanging out with the sheep having a good time. They were shepherdesses. And I started to see that they would have had calloused hands and they would have had the musculature of women who every day were moving sheep and fixing fences and, you know pulling water up from stingy wells and they would have been strong and they would have um, had to learn how to work together in the landscape, which was not a, which I would have considered to be an inhospitable landscape, dry, not easy to get water. And on top of that, patriarchal, Mm -hmm. all the male shepherds. And just the way that men, sorry, but often men can make it really hard for women to uh, get the job done Um, as a
0: understatement,
1: (laughs) right? And so, you know, here we find the story, these women, they've got their sheep, you know, and we get to hear the story where Moses saves the day, he comes in and he comes to the well and he pushes away these overly aggressive shepherds uh, so that the women can, you know, go home early, it says, Um, which, gosh, I wish women could go home early more often um, (laughs) if we didn't have to deal with the misogyny in our culture. But, um, you know, I found myself wanting to know, what did the women do every other day when Mm. Moses wasn't there? Because every other day, they still had to deliver, right, just to birth the, you know, help the sheep as they birthed and, and get them water and help them, you know, in and out of pasture. I mean, they were good shepherds every other day too. And I I guess that opened the door to me recognizing that one of the strategies for these seven sisters would have had to have been a practiced solidarity. Learning to work together. Which one could use her feminine wiles when they had to? Which one had the wits to outsmart some of these shepherds? Which ones could move the herd the fastest because of their strength and their kind right they would have had to know each other well known how to use those skills in turn, knew which ones needed a break sometimes, knew which ones worked better as pairs and not by themselves. Like, and I just imagine, wow, yeah, solidarity. You know, we often talk about the woman, the singular woman of valor in in Proverbs 31. And I'm like, I bet you it's actually more like women, plural Mm -hmm. of valor, that the only way that it is sustainable is in solidarity. And of course, liberation is long-term work. It's Mm. not a sprint. Liberation is long, long stretches of of lament and hope and hard work. And if you are gonna get there, I mean, in Africa, we say, if you wanna go fast, you go by yourself. But if you wanna go, right, if you wanna go far, you better better go with the group, you better have your people. And I, I imagine that it was solidarity that gave them the staying power and the sustainability um, to navigate that terrain but it, it also kind of lights my imagination for the reality of liberation work is we have to do it together mm-hmm. we can't do it alone mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: who are our pharaohs today
1: oh gosh you were going to make me say that name i'm not going to say that name
0: <laughs> <laughs> say it if you want
1: no i mean obviously this uh you know one of the things that i think people miss when they read exodus um, and maybe it's because we learn it as children um, with watercolored pictures or felt boards. Uh, but as an adult, when you read the story, you actually see that there is a, a socioeconomic, there is a socio-political world that we are given, right? Pharaoh's Palace on one side, the brickyards on the other, the Nile, which becomes a picture of injustice that just goes right down the middle, and people of different socioeconomic classes. And you start to really see that there are these dynamic dynamics in the text. Because they are actually the dynamics in our world, and so Egypt was Egypt was, but Egypt is it is where we all live, and we can name our own Egypts, but that also means we have some pharaohs and uh, if we can't if we, if we don't name the Pharaohs, we can also say that we have Pharaonic forces whenever we have forces of deathliness um, about us we are we are dealing in the the landscape of pharaoh. Um, I'll tell you, pharaohs are very similar. They uh, are fixated on numbers. Mm -hmm. They always are thinking of greatness. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, it's in the text, greatness. Mm -hmm. They always are thinking about their greatness. High ratings. Yes. (laughs) And they are always intimidated by the women and usually underestimate them. Mm -hmm. And if that sounds like somebody we know, and we see on daily briefings, and we see across our Twitter feed, I think the text leads us to imagine that we know, <laughs> we know a pharaoh who is present among us, who deals in the ways of cruelty and deathliness. And um, yeah, and I would say other other countries will name their pharaohs.
2: Mm.
1: Um, they aren't always the people in the, you know, in in the Downing Street or White House or, you know, whatever. Um, But I think for us, that happens to be the case. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's how I understand. um, That's how I understand our politics right now. Mm -hmm, That's great. That's as close as I'll get.
0: (laughs) That's okay. Um, I wrote a whole
1: book without using that name on purpose.
0: That is a feat. That is a total feat. Today I have Ben and Jonah, and Ben and Jonah are both a part of a wonderful indie group called Stormo. Uh, yeah, Ben, can you tell me what you do in the band, and then Jonah, can you tell me a little bit what what you do in the band?
3: Yeah, so um, we like split songwriting, I guess, so I'll write four songs, and he'll write four songs, and then... Um, I just kind of try to, we just all kind of filled in in different spots. Uh, I'll probably, like, he'll write maybe a rhythm guitar and I'll write a lead guitar mm. or the other way around, stuff like mm. that.
0: It's a highly collaborative in that way. And, and Ben, and, or sorry, Jonah, you mentioned that you also are a vocalist. Are there other things that you kind of do in the band as well?
4: Yeah, so kind of like Ben said, we'll both uh we'll write a song and to us like a song would be like a chord progression with a riff attached to it and maybe a melody maybe not it usually starts with a chord progression and a riff so one of us will come up with something like that and then then the rest of it i mean the rest of the music kind of goes out to all the other band members Mm -hmm. Uh, you know like uh like if i wrote a chord progression Ben would put over a guitar part and then, you know, our drummer would put drums over it and, you know, everyone kind of has a respective role.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: But um, yeah, you know, I play guitar and sing, write songs. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Uh, you mentioned or I, I, one of the things I, I noticed uh, and I wanted to mention is that it looked like your your first EP came out recently. Is it is it your first music that you've all released uh, as, as Stormo? Yes. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about what that like sort of first recording process as a band looked like? Uh, I mean, were, were there parts of it that, that felt really natural that you all kind of were in sync with one another? Were there times where you're like, maybe, maybe button heads a little bit more or that there's a little bit more uh, just a struggle in the writing process and recording process? Can you talk a little bit about what that sort of first experience as a band was like uh, recording and uh, writing?
2: yeah um it actually
3: it's weird, so there were some spots like we did we did like the scratch tracks together, and that was actually a lot of fun and I liked how the scratch tracks sounded and then it just kind of it turned into just like borrowing gear and figuring that out, and our drummer was like recording everything and he and a whole bunch of other bands, so it was like hard to get everybody in the same room together a lot and then um but then like near the end of the record there was there is, were just kind of like tying up some loose ends and we actually in, ended up adding a lot of really cool stuff to the song like last minute.
0: Can you talk a little bit about, you mentioned that you both are vocalists uh, and so you sort of like collaborate and uh, Ben, you mentioned that it really is like sort of a 50-50 split in terms of writing. Um, Can you talk a little bit then about who kind of gets like more of like a vocal lead on a song? Is it sort of a thing where if somebody writes the like the bulk of the lyrics, then they kind of get the vocal lead or is there some other like system that you're using when it comes to that sort of thing?
3: Yeah, so, like, if somebody's, like, a lead singer on that song, it's usually because they wrote it, you know, like, I don't know. I think we've, I've had it a few times where Jonah, like, made an idea, and I actually really liked it a lot, and I wanted to play it and sing over it, but I've never, like, you know, actually, like, gone through with something like that. You know, I think there's, like, a certain level of pride, like, you want to sing over the dope instrumental you just made.
0: Yeah. yeah
3: that's usually how it mm-hmm. goes. And we'll do harmonies from there, you know
0: hmm um it, it reminds me a lot i mean i'm not the biggest like blink 182 fan but i know that like for tom uh tom along and mark hops that, like that's exactly the process that they had like if, if tom wrote a bit uh or wrote like a song then he gets to go with it or mark uh writes a song then he gets to go with it um or if they like collaborate a little bit more then there really is sort of like an interchanging um and so and you totally hear that with like blink song so um no, that's not to i say. Like, I'm not the biggest Blink-182 fan, but I, I, I don't mind them. But anyway, uh, but it, it reminds me of a lot of their process uh, in terms of writing. You, you both mentioned, too, to me that you both are in college. Um, how does the dynamics of being in college and being in a band kind of, like, I mean, I feel like you're, you're in college. You're doing a lot of different things. You might have, like, a job and everything. I mean, there's a lot of things going on. So how do you balance that with being in a band as well?
4: Well, I think for a while it was like we didn't like see each other unless we had band stuff going on. So mm-hmm. throughout the, the busy schedule, throwing a gig in there was like, oh, cool. I can see my friends, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I guess another part of it is I. I've had to make sacrifices, you know, like as far as writing goes, Um Cause like I'll have a paper due and it'll be like, I have to do it now or never, but then all of a sudden the creative juices are coming out mm-hmm. and probably cause I have to write a paper and um, I'll like play guitar for six hours and then be like, Oh crap. I'll write the paper in the morning or whatever, you know? Um, I don't know. I found that, or, you know, sometimes it works the other way around where instead of doing anything creatively, I have to, do my schoolwork so it's kind of like I've had to make sacrifices to make it work
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ben, can you talk a little bit about what how you balance sort of college and band uh together
3: yeah I don't I (laughs) (laughs) I honestly I do school three fourths of the year and then I'll have random grooves during the school year I guess I'll start like trying to write songs again but it never really works because like I do so much like guitar classical work that I'm like burnt out and I picked up a gig for this musical so like all of my creative time was just going into like making funk guitar parts for this musical but like during the summer and just like any break I get I kind of know life it and just like play guitar until my body hurts and <laughs> just, just something.
0: yeah totally uh like i mentioned you you recently released your first ep are you all kind of in the process of maybe getting a new project out there uh yeah what does the future look like for stormo
4: well we're writing (laughs) we have a bunch of ideas that uh, we're hoping to put on a new album
0: awesome are, are there like any booking any time to to record or anything? Is that kind of in the future? Any idea of like when the this like the new writing, all the new music might come out? Any like is that even in the the purview yet?
3: Well, um, I've been trying to start recording again. I'm trying to <laughs> push Jonah into recording too, because there's like there's something about a friendly competition. Like if if I send something to Jonah, it's probably going to stress him out a little bit and make him. <laughs> if he, if he even sends me like a terrible voice memo, I'm like, dude, I forgot how to write songs. Like I need to go.
0: I (laughs) got to get. So it's a, I mean, you really should send those right when he like has a bunch of papers due like that. It sounds like that's like the best time when when he's, when he, his creative juices are really going to flow. So like, just, you know, if you really want to like make him the best uh, musician, you can really send it right when there's like a 20 page paper that's due.
3: I guess so. I'm just finding this out. I'll I'll be taking notes. There you
0: go. I'm glad I'm glad we were able to to you know work make the band a little bit better. So, well, you guys are great. Uh thank you so much for your sharing your music. Uh I really really dig it. I'm a you know big fan of a lot of indie stuff. And so to kind of hear uh so to me, I mean, you really are talented. I really hope that you guys continue to do this, uh, this music because I, I think you really have a lot of talent there, a lot of gifts, uh, and a lot of uniqueness. So uh, continue to do that work. Uh, I love it, uh, and thank you again for sharing. One of the things that, I mean, I love your book in that it highlights women who otherwise typically are dismissed from this story, even though they're right there. They're literally in the text. Yeah. Unfortunately, we still think of them as sort of a backdrop, right? And, we, and a book like yours is important because it actually kind of brings them to the foreground. But unfortunately, like kind of in, within our dominant understanding of this text in this story they're still considered a backdrop where a book like yours is actually needed um and so one of the things that i i was thinking about is in that regard the women are still kind of considered a backdrop in the story and they need to be highlighted but where like we need the stories where the women aren't necessarily aren't the backdrop that are that are doing the work they're the actual Moseses, right um so what are ways in which our society can empower women as leaders of liberation, where they're no longer the backdrops of doing the hard labor mm-hmm. in the background, but are the the MLKs, they are the Moseses. Yeah. What how, What are ways in which our society can empower women to be that kind of leader?
1: Well, I, I I'm not gonna I'm I'm not probably not even the best person to speak to that, but I'll tell you one of the my hopes in writing this book was that. I think part of what we need is an imagination to see women in these kind of roles. Mm. Uh, and you know, I spent a lot of time in the evangelical space in my youth. Um, uh, so I would say I'm evangelical adjacent. Mm. I have, I'm -hmm. familiar with the narratives and the Mm -hmm. stories mentality. And I grew up where it was Martha and Mary. That was how we framed our understanding, but both of both Martha and Mary in that story are in domesticated space. Mm. Right. Uh, and I was like, you know, I want I want people, to, especially women, but men also, I want people to see uh, that there is another picture of how women can be engaged. Yes, in their families, yes, in their church, but also in the community at large. Mm-hmm. And and so when I saw these women, it was like, ah, oh, this is a picture. This is a picture from our own holy text, which I know to a lot of my evangelical sisters is so important. They want to see it in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Here it is. Here are 12 badass women. Part of the liberation story, um, Moses would not have survived had it not been for these women, saving him as a baby, his wife saving him as he was going across the desert one night. I mean, really, there would have been no Moses. (laughs) And therefore, the liberation story would have looked very different, Mm -hmm. if at all, without him. But he couldn't have done it without the women. And so for me, it's like, do we, we, we need to, I think people want to see it in the text. They want to, to have an archetype, a new picture that gives them the imagination to engage differently, but also the permission. I mean, part of what I wanted was to say, you have permission. Mm-hmm. Because after the election, I found a lot of women um, kind of asking, you know, I, I happened to participate in the women's march, you know, that day after inauguration. And mm-hmm. um, I had people like, can Christian women do that? Can we be part of those kinds of things? And I wanted to say, we have permission, whatever the spirit is stirring up in you to do in your communities, to help your neighbors, you have permission. Mm -hmm. So my little part of the work is I want to show you what's already in your sacred scriptures. And I, I hope that you will then listen to the work that the spirit is already stirring up in you. Uh, maybe you're going to be like Lisa Sharon Harper and stand on the steps of the Supreme Court and, you know, uh, stand against the death penalty and be willing to be arrested for that. Maybe you're going to be like um, Carolina um, Cisneros and others who were- A former guest
0: there. on this podcast, by the way.
1: Oh, she's she- She's wonderful, isn't she? She's my hermana. I love her. She was the one that introduced me to you, actually. Oh, yeah, so she great. connected. Yeah, anyways. That's awesome. Um, But, you know, like she and some of our other Latina sisters, they were on the front lines of getting us to pay attention and to pray when that zero tolerance policy was just crushing and still Mm -hmm. is crushing families at the border. Whatever the spirit is stirring up in you, you get to do it. And it may look like the women in Exodus. But of course, this is a different Egypt. It may look different. So I hope, you know, we imagine differently, we have permission, and then we just listen to the spirit. That's what I want to see.
0: Mm, I love that. How do you see, I mean, this might be very blatantly obvious, uh, in the way that you just answered the last question, but how do you see this book being inspiring and liberating theological work?
2: Well, you know, I've been
1: surprised how many people have asked me about the imagination piece
0: Hmm.
1: and actually women who have said, I have never thought I was allowed to, to engage my imagination, almost like my imagination was supposed to be, uh, Uh, cordoned off from the text, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, and maybe some of that, especially in our more evangelical spaces, we're thinking about literally, you know, there's a deep love for scripture, but it kind of plays out in a very literal wooden way of engaging it. And so I found a lot of people have been like, wow, I didn't know that our imaginations could be part of the interpretive process, and therefore part of the preaching process, part of how we live into the text, Uh, So a lot of people have already commented that for them, you know, that was already liberating because they're allowed to see differently and think and imagine their own engagement differently. Um, I didn't necessarily intend that, but I love that that is one of the things that has happened. Um, But yeah, I mean, my big thing was I was really hoping to to show women um, this is a new archetype.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I grew up with Martha and Mary And the story is still a gift to us if we understand it well, but here's another archetype. Mm. And it might actually be a better framework for these days and these times and the work that we need to do, which I think is liberation work. um, This might be the archetype when we talk about women for our time, 12 women who Uh, As I like to say, they defied Pharaoh, they rescued Moses, and they plundered Egypt. And that is the work I think we need to be doing. Um, And I hope that people feel the uh, permission—the biblically, it's the biblical (laughs) Mm -hmm. permission—to get out there on the streets or whatever uh, the Spirit is encouraging us to do, or our sisters are inviting us to do. Often, the the voice of the Spirit is the voice of our sisters saying, "We need you in this with us." You know,
0: Mm -hmm. that's so great. And
1: our brothers too
0: totally. Uh last question Kelly, how can sure. listeners get connected to you and your work?
1: Well, I'm most active on Instagram. That's kind of my platform of mm-hmm. choice. So K Nikondeha um over on Instagram. Um I mean I have a I I'm, I'm over on Facebook and I'm on Twitter a bit, although I'm much more of a listener <laughs> on Twitter. Um <laughs> uh, but really Instagram is the best place to reach me.
0: Great. Awesome. Well, I appreciated your book so much. I I really loved again the 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 kind of bringing to the foreground of these stories of women that typically are not placed in the foreground for a yeah. lot of us who are reading the story so i i loved it for that um and, and I just love how you're an amazing writer and to be able to beautifully weave your own stories and your own own things that are happening in the world with this story. It's really incredible. On top of that, I, I know that you probably didn't do the cover, but the cover of your book is great, too, not to mention all the other things. So um, I love the book. It's really great. And I love the work that you're doing. And um, thank you so much for being on the, the podcast.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been wonderful to be in the conversation.
0: If you'd like to connect with both Kelly and Stormo and their work,